Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 42, the closed account edition. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are or whatever you're doing. We've got a fair bit to go through this week, so I'm going to get right to it and go through the indices for the week, see how the Australian market and US markets performed. So the ASX 200 was up. It was up this week, so up 0.5%. The S&P 500 in the US was up 1.3%. The NASDAQ up a little bit better, 3.1%. So again, for Australia, at least our market, he has pushed on into positive territory for a seventh straight consecutive week. I think last week I joked that maybe it was running out of steam, but it didn't run out of steam. It, it continued on. In in Friday here, our local market, it kind of turned a little bit more sour. It actually fell back 1.2% on that day alone. Kind of got a bit worse as the day progressed on. And I imagine that a lot of that's to do with we people were digesting the news out of Sydney in regards to a COVID cluster various states coming back to impose travel restrictions on the greater Sydney area or maybe the state full stop to stop a potential spread. Just on Friday alone, as that news started to filter in, you had companies like Qantas falling 3.5%, Flight Centre 2.7%, Webjet down 1.8%. But these travel stocks are not the biggest companies on the index. It was really the big banks that also sort of dragged us down, Commonwealth Bank and Westpac, both fell 1.8 and 1.5% respectively on Friday alone. In the US, actually, the market also kind of soured right at the end of the, the week, the major indices down on Friday specifically. Likely the lack of stimulus still not there come Friday, which we'll get to later on. But another really interesting event that's kind of going on in the US for the index is the inclusion of Tesla, the electric car automaker in the S&P 500, and this has been in the making uh, for a bit of time now, but on December 21, so Monday in America, Tesla will actually officially be included in the S&P 500 index for the first time ever. And you might ask why I had assumed it, it was already there given how big of a company it is, and that's a fair question. The S&P 500 index, whilst it does look to track the largest 500 companies in America, it does have some ground rules to get in. One of them's, I can't remember how many, but you have to like, several consecutive quarters of profitability, which Tesla has just recently achieved. So Tesla's been thrown into the index. One reason why this, I guess, is a big event, well, there's a couple of reasons. So this is a really big company that's going into the index. So it's going to go, it's going to enter the S&P 500 as one of the top 10 largest companies of that index already. So it's not like it's coming in from the bottom and moving its way through or something like that. I'll just quote this part from an article on Market Watch by Mark DeCrombray. Quote, part of the trepidation on Wall Street is that Tesla, the largest ever such company by market value to join the S&P 500, will immediately see a weighting in the 500 company index of between 1.5 and 1.6%. To put that in addition into perspective, every $11 move in the company's share price would swing the entire S&P 500 by nearly a point. So yeah, watch out for that. Tesla shares in the last month are already up 42%. And there appears to be some buying of Tesla shares because people know it's going to come into the S&P 500. And what 
when it is officially in the S&P 500 index funds or active funds that track the S&P 500, they will have to actually buy Tesla and include it in their portfolio. So say if you're invested in an index fund ETF, well, let's take one of the, we'll take one of the biggest ones in the world, which is well, the, the biggest one in the world, which is a State Street Global Advisors S&P 500 ETF or SPY is the code. If this is this one I'm actually referring to is US based. So you can actually invest in it if you want. Um, you, you have to have a platform that accesses the US markets, but this ETF is, is listed over in the US. So this fund, biggest ETF in the world, I'm fairly certain that the second biggest ETF in the world is also an S&P 500 ETF. So it's probably BlackRock or Vanguard, I can't quite remember. But this fund will actually have to make room for Tesla come Monday because it track, it, that's what it does. It tracks the S&P 500 as it is. It will need to buy up the shares. If like the Market Watch article I just quoted before said, if it's say if Tesla is now 1.5% of the whole fund, then that fund will have to mirror that and make sure their fund is 1.5% Tesla. So all that buying activity is suggested to kind of push Tesla potentially even more. So, I mean, we'll see. It's definitely worth a watch next week. And speaking of industry changes, here in Australia, uh, buy now, pay later company Afterpay continued to surge in share price during the week and has now officially entered the top 20, the ASX 20, uh, and I believe it knocked out IAG, Insurance Australia Group. So there you go. We have our own changes going on here in Australia. So that was the week, like I said, at the top. Overall positive for the market's performance. Some worries right there at the end in terms of will we have to see some more lockdowns? That's kind of going to hamper our current efforts or current trajectory to turn uh, to get into some sort of sense of normality, especially a bit of a dampener for people that might be impacted with holiday plans uh, because of that. There was a couple quite notable names that didn't have a great week. They kind of dropped a little bit hard and the, the prize winner, of course, will have to go to Mesoblast, which is a company we've mentioned on this podcast before, ticker code MSB. Now, the update from Mesoblast was in regards to a therapy treatment they have. It is called Remistem Cell. And this is a therapy treatment that the company created specifically for ventilator-dependent patients uh, with and for and they have what's called ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, uh, due to the COVID-19 infection. Now, what happened is the Data Safety Monitoring Board, which is basically the entity undertaking a trial of this mesoblast therapy, basically has cut the trial short and stopped it, which is what the company announced uh, towards the end of the week. And it's not because the treatment's dangerous or producing something nasty or... It's more merely that it's appearing to not have the results it intended to achieve from the start, of what, which is what reducing the mortality rate in patients within a 30-day window. So when it started out, initially wanted to look to achieve a 43% reduction in mortality in that 30 days. Now, the company in their announcement at the end of the week more or less said that the reason it isn't being as effective of a treatment is they had anticipated is because as treatment for COVID-19 has evolved over the course of 2020, and this is for anyone, not just people with really severe cases who end up on a ventilator, but people with just non-severe cases as well, treatment has changed uh, because you know doctors and nurses and everything are, are learning about the virus more and more. And this has ultimately had an effect on the mortality rate and the pilot of their treatment was based on earlier initial stages of the pandemic where mortality rates were higher levels, it was a lot more dangerous then. 
And just to speak generally, because although the vaccine's only now starting to initially roll out, we're seeing the likes of, you know, US politicians getting them on camera this week. Uh, as the year has progressed, doctors and specialists, like I said, are continuing to learn more and more about the virus and some of the effective ways to try and combat it regardless of the vaccine. So this trial being cut short was not good news, as you can imagine, especially considering they had a potential big pharma deal in place that might not uh, go through because of the news. They actually fell, their shares fell 47% off this news alone. So just for context, if you had put 10 grand into this the day before the announcement, it's now worth five grand. Mesoblast is such a good example of the roller coaster of emotions that is investing in biotech health companies, which I think I've said before. Because if you look at their chart over the last 12 months, there have been some incredible moments to make money off this company, but it's been a very bumpy up and down ride for shareholders uh, where you get a lot of um, enthusiasm and then say bad news, especially with something like the FDA coming in and putting a bit of dampener, which I think is the reason we talked about them last time. But I imagine if, you're, if you've been holding this whole way through, it's a very dismal day to cap the year off. Now, for context, I do not own shares in this company. I don't really have a view on them, but uh, it was an interesting piece of news there. The other, the other big fall, I guess, in terms of a big name happening at the end of a, towards the end of our week on our market was infant formula and milk manufacturer A2 Milk. It's already not been a great year for A2M because they, they have already come to the market and reduced their earnings guidance for the year. And what caused this week's tumble was them doing that again. So on top of that, they've brought it down a little bit further, which doesn't look great. From, a, from management there, just taking this next part about why this is, it's just from their market release about the news, quote, the effect of the disruption in the Digo channel, which represents a significant portion, proportions rather, of our infant nutrition sales in our ANZ business has proven to be more significant and protracted than what was previously anticipated. While this has predominantly affected infant nutrition sales, Sales in our other nutritional segment have now also been impacted. Now, the actual numbers in their release, they note that the financial year 21 guidance is a revenue of 1.4 to 1.55 billion, which has come down where they were a few months ago when they were anticipating 1.8 to 1.9 billion, which had already sort of been brought down because of COVID. And just to refresh on what the Diago channel is, because it's a very important thing to understand when companies like A2 Milk, effectively the Daigos are it's a buying channel where someone purchases an A2M product like infant formula and then resells that into China directly. So I guess acting as a bit of a middleman in the process that earns a, a cut on top of the price that they paid for it here in Australia. And this has been heavily impacted for companies like A2M that quite rely on this channel since COVID. Imagine, of course, travel restrictions, there's basically no international tourism, which has not been good for A2 Milk. There's lack of international students to universities, also because of the same thing with the travel restrictions who, who tend to or might interact with this channel. It's been a rough year and A2M has spoken about what is their corporate digos. So a bit, I guess more sophisticated business setups that resell into China, but it seems the impact of that casual digo channel has been a, a quite significant for the company. For the week, A2M shares were down 22.36%, closing the week out at $10.14. If you, At the very peak of the year, so if you go look at their 52-week high, 
Actually, on that note, if you ever see, if you're ever on a trading platform or something like Yahoo Finance and you see the term 52-week high and low, this refers to the lowest and highest points that the company or the stock has traded at in the last 52 weeks. So 52-week high, if we look at it for A2M, it's $20.05. So that was the highest that they were trading at. Uh, and they've closed off at a tinge over $10 per share. So it's it's kind of got it's kind of come down halfway from those highs it had in the middle of the year. Well, let's talk about some broader economic news in the States. As I'm noting this down on Sunday morning in Australia, the stimulus package we have talked so much about these past weeks and what the market has been hanging on to for news and updates these past few weeks looks pretty close to coming through maybe even in the next 48 hours. The other the other thing we spoke about, the potential US government shutdown was also temporarily averted. This was because the stimulus package has not been finalized. Congress pushed through a temporary spending bill just for a few days to avert any kind of shutdown over the weekend whilst they hammer out the remainder of the stimulus package. It does look like at least as I'm recording this with the news we have available that a $600 stimulus check will be included in the bill as well as some unemployment assistance. We'll see, which is kind of a good segue into some of the poor economic data that came out in the US this week around unemployment. And I'll quote the next part from a CNBC article published by Fred Imbert. Quote, jobless claims unexpectedly rose last week as states reimposed coronavirus restrictions as lawmakers struggle to push through new government aid, according to a Labor Department report Thursday. The number of first-time unemployment benefits filers totaled 885,000 in the week ending December 12th, which is the most since the week of September 5th. Economists polled by Dow Jones expected initial claims to fall to 808,000. There's not much else to say there except that it's kind of more data that shows just how fragile the US economy is right now. The fact that they are still talking, or to, sorry, not talking, but rather taking their time to put any kind of stimulus on the table right now is quite insane to me. Obviously, this data shows that the continuous virus spread and resulting lockdowns are having a huge impact still on the labor market or coming back to impact it, even though it's, it had started to recover and this is against a backdrop of continued rises in daily cases, rises in daily deaths, rises in hospitalizations, which those hospitalizations then turn into more deaths. The US is currently experiencing the worst daily death numbers they've ever had, so worse than when this all started. So the vaccine rollout, I'm sure, can't come soon enough for people and I'm sure especially health workers over in the US. Staying on the US sort of macro front, really interesting read on uh, from Morning Consult this week, a report titled Assessing the True Strength of U.S. Consumer Finances by John Lear, who is an economist with Morning Consult. And there's a lot of good stuff in this article. I'm not going to go through it all, but one of the charts referring, there is one chart referring to the share of Americans who can't pay their household basic expenses for a full month using just their savings. And it's worth noting here. So they pull this data from polling people um, every month and so they're looking at trends in this data and they look at various income brackets as well. But overall, the share of adults who can't meet household basic expenses um, for a month using just their savings. So like just pretend you've lost your job as of today, no more income coming through, you've just got to last on your savings. So this is the share of adults who can't do that. It's gone from around 20% in August. It's steadily risen up to now to 25%. So that's an indicator getting worse. Outlined in the article is how the overall savings rate, which 
has been pointed to a lot. But it has risen in the US this year. It's also risen here in Australia, especially off the back of um, government stimulus, so a lot of government money coming in, uh, helping that savings rate and people trying to hold on as opposed to uh, spend crazy. And whilst this has gone up, it, it, the overall savings rate does mask certain weaknesses across particular income brackets, namely low income brackets. The, the data, as you can imagine, in this article shows it's this particular weakness we're talking about in adults with less than 50k, 50,000 in annual income, but also an increasing weakness in the 50 to 100k annual income bracket. So go have a look at that article. It's, it's really interesting. So Morning Consult, um, it's titled Assessing the True Strength of US Consumers' Finances. Let's stay on the macro, but we'll return back to Australia. We did see unemployment figures come out yeah, this week from the ABS, it's worth at least touching on the main numbers here. I'll quote the financial review first. This is an article by Matthew Cranston titled Jobless Rate Falls to 6.8% as Victoria Rebounds. Quote, Australia's unemployment rate fell to 6.8% in November from 7% after the economy gained 90,000 new jobs as Victoria's COVID-19 restrictions were lifted. The improvement was more than double economists' expectations of just 40,000 extra jobs in November and an overall 7% unemployment rate due to higher participation. The numbers show more than 740,000 jobs have been added to the economy in the past six months. And now I'll pull some data here directly from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So yeah, the unemployment rate come down by 0.2 to 6.8%, as still as ABS show 1.7 points higher than a year ago, percentage points, sorry. Uh, The other ones we like to pay attention to the underemployment rate decreased by 1 points to 9.4%, still higher than it was a year ago. The underutilization rate decreased by 1.2 points to 16.2%. Remember, underemployment, people who would want to work more, they are employed, but they would say they might be part-time or casual, but they want to be full-time, so that's underemployment. Um, Unemployed is obviously people who are in the workforce, so actively looking for jobs, but they're not employed at the moment. Underutilization is a combination of those people unemployed and those people who are underemployed together. So that's underutilization because they're both people that are not working as much as they can or they want to. So good movement. They're still recovering. I remember the Reserve Bank of Australia, their central scenario is, of course, to, that they that of course they will see the unemployment rate recovering, but still a little over 6% at the end of 2022. So not even at the end of next year, which I don't know if they'll change that because I'm not saying they're wrong because I, I have no idea I'm talking about. I'm not going to say the RBA is wrong, but it is a lot more conservative than I've seen other ec- economists uh, predicting where the unemployment will reach, say, at the end of next year. But th- So they're, they're, they think it'll be a smidge over 6% still at the end of 2022. Now, of course, it's just a projection. Only time will tell if that's accurate or not, but... Um, in terms of just uh, referring back to a baseline right before COVID, remember, so that unemployment rate at that time was 5.2%. But I thought maybe we end the year, uh, end the podcast, but also end the year on maybe some in, something important or some lessons that we've, I've been thinking about, especially this year, and some important considerations. I think it was a year that started out with bushfires and then it quickly change the channel to a fear of a global pandemic, lockdowns facing most of the world to contain this, some more successful than others, a particularly intense lockdown that Victoria went through here at home 
in more the middle of the year, a very crazy sequence of events that led up to the US presidential election, full of even more misinformation than the last one. And now we finish the year with vaccine trials finishing, vaccines starting to roll out. Uh, as I'm recording, there's still more um, uncertainty around what's happening with New South Wales right at Christmas time in terms of what actions states are going to take in regards to the cluster there. But if we go back and reflect on the market itself, probably the biggest reminder of this year and what to take away is that market crashes and market booms, they come and they go. It was December 31st, 2019, so almost exactly a year ago, that CNBC reported that investment bank Goldman Sachs were saying that a downturn in the economy is unlikely over the next several years. They said, I believe they said in quotation marks that it was recession-proof, the US economy. So the power of hindsight to laugh at those magic ball statements is good. But And I'm not going to pick on Goldman Sachs in particular. This kind of stuff happens all the time. It happens when people say the market is definitely about to crash, sell everything, and then it doesn't. And then it happens when people say, like, oh, there's not a bubble, it's not overpriced, it's fine, and then it, it turns out it is, and then there is a big market crash. That happens in financial markets. It can happen in the property market as well. So I'm not going to pick on anyone. I'm just making the point. Um, I guess my self-admitted limited experience tells me, and it still tells me, that the best game for long-term investors is to stay invested. And that doesn't mean you're going to get everything right. It doesn't mean you... Um, might not have to reevaluate certain investments that you've made. You'll probably get it wrong a few times. In fact, it's probably good that you do get it wrong a few times, but panic should never overtake you or scare you into, I guess, inaction. And if you're sitting here right now in December, wondering if, okay, is it now safe to, to jump in and buy some shares? Chances are you probably should have done that many, many months ago. The, the truth is no one's going to know what happens tomorrow. But I don't think the sidelines is the place to spend out your years thinking about getting in. And that doesn't mean you throw all caution to the wind either. Something I've learned over the last 12 to 8 months especially is it's very important to have some kind of buffer, have some uh, savings that you can rely on, some kind of funds that if it does get a bit tough and you need to survive, especially if you lost a job or something, that you can rely on. But also for those who are luckier or in a position to invest, this year was a good example uh, where it's good to have a bit of cash on the sidelines where you can sort of move quickly and deploy when the opportunity arises. There have been some horror stories this year, especially from those firms that are impacted by the pandemic, such as companies in the travel sector. But there have been some interesting opportunities out this out of this as well. And even some big retail stalls like JB Hi-Fi, which people were, I, I remember reading people going, oh, I wouldn't want to touch, you know, stocks like that. They, they've seen some amazing turnarounds due to, I guess, what you would say their surprising resilience in the face of uncertainty. But the ultimate lesson through this is, I think, stay invested, look for more opportunities. Even if you're passively investing, which I do some of that, I do myself, I have part of uh, my portfolio in a broad Australian ETF index and a US NASDAQ exchange traded fund. And I added to both of those um, this year, uh, to one of them I added a couple times and it's turned out to be a good decision. So make sure you stay interested and not just in your investments, but potential opportunities that you're looking at, keep on top of it. But And if you're confident in the choices long-term, just don't get too stressed if the ride's a little bit bumpy because there's going to be plenty of headlines. But when we saw plenty of headlines this year, about scary headlines, and we think about what's 
when we head into 2021, what some of those scary headlines might be about. Well, maybe I should stop using the word scary, but just uncertainty or big news events. But you're going to have, what, Joe Biden being inaugurated in January. What executive orders will he push through? Uh, do Republicans retain Congress after the Georgia runoffs? Are the vaccines more or less successful than we thought? Are we able to roll them out as quickly as we'd like to? Do more vaccines come down the line that are even better? Do trade relationships cool down between Australia and China? Do they get worse? Do people go back to the offices in the CBD? Or is it normal now to just work from home or do a bit of both? What does that mean for the economy? What does it mean for real estate? Will tourism and migration return when COVID settles? How long will it take? What's the iron ore price going to be in 2021? How will the government continue or phase out stimulus measures going into 2021? How is that going to impact the unemployment rate? You can keep going on and on and on. There's so much to think about. And I do think about this stuff because it interests me, but I don't let it keep me on the sidelines. And I think that's a really important lesson in general, but especially an important lesson for 2021. Well, that is a Christmas wrap. I almost said WAP, gosh. For today's episode of the Market Pulse podcast, you have been listening to episode 42, the closed account edition. Thank you for thank you very much for coming along with me on this episode today and more importantly, this podcast, which we kicked off the first ever episode about 11 months ago. So it's almost a year old. I have enjoyed this little project, enjoyed the feedback and the questions from listeners. It helps me to stay motivated to keep on top of what is happening in the economy and financial markets. So thank you for that. As I say, the best Christmas present you could give me is by telling a friend or a family member about the show mention it to someone you think might like it, jump on the Apple Podcast app and give it a star rating and review. Would love you for it. I hope you do have a fantastic Christmas and New Year. The Market Pulse podcast will return to your ears on January the 17th, 2021. So look out for it there. As always, my name is Dion Gribben and I will see you all in 2021. Cheers. Cheers.